invite you to take them and turn with me to our text today as it's found in Malachi chapter 2 verse 10. There we read, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? In the previous sermon, we answered the question as to whether the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant ended when the colonies declared their independence from their mother country of England and formed a new nation calling themselves the United States of America, or whether the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant continued uninterrupted from the British colonies to the United States of America after the Declaration of Independence was issued July the 4th, 1776. It was answered that although the political identity of the British colonies died and a new political identity was born, which was called the United States of America, the moral person as to being the posterity of Britain, did not die. Did not die with the British colonies, but continued to live with the United States of America. Thus, the descending obligation of the Solemn Lincoln Covenant upon the moral posterity, the moral person of the posterity of Britain did not die with the British colonies, but continued upon the same moral person simply under a new political identity called the United States of America. There's one more example I would like to add from the very words of the Declaration of Independence that further demonstrates the continuity of the same moral person from the British colonies to the United States of America, and thus the descending obligation of the Solemn Lincoln Covenant, likewise passing from the moral person of the British colonies to the same moral person of the United States of America. The representatives of the United States of America in General Congress on July the 4th, 1776, in the Declaration of Independence, refer to the citizens of Britain as, quote, our British brethren, end of quote. When they have this brief sentence, and uh, this is summarizes what I would like to elaborate on for just a moment here. It says this in the Declaration of Independence, nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. End of quote. 
Note, first of all, that even as the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress declare themselves free of British rule, they nevertheless look back to the moral injuries committed against them as a moral person when they were British colonies, as committed against the same moral person that now declares their independence from Britain. For the same we that assumes the name the United States of America and declares their independence from Britain is the same we that had unwarrantable jurisdiction extended over them by Britain as British colonies. The United States does not distinguish itself from the former British colonies by referring to the British colonies as they previously existed by using the pronoun they and then referring to the United States as we, but rather refers to both the British colonies and the United States as we. Note secondly, that the same we that assumes the name United States of America and declares their independence from Britain is the same we that still identifies all those of Britain as our British brethren. So let's see if we can figure this one out. The United States of America calls Britain our British brethren. Now, doesn't that mean that we, therefore, are the same posterity from the same mother country? If even after the Declaration of Independence, they're still our British brethren? Clearly, the United States of America own themselves to be the continued posterity of the same mother country with those they call our British brethren. Now, don't miss this. Britain is not merely said to have been in the past the brethren of the British colonies of North America, but rather is said to be presently, even after the Declaration of Independence is published, our British brethren. Why? Because Britain and the United States are the posterity of the same mother country, namely England. Now, if the same moral person before God continues, even though the political identity before man changes from being British colonies to the United States of America, how much more clearly it should be acknowledged by all that the same moral person before God continues even though a new constitution is adopted by the same nation that was previously established. In other words, if the solemn league and covenant between God and the posterity of Britain bound the United States of America after they declared their independence from Britain and formed a new political identity before man, as has been demonstrated from both scripture and history in previous sermons, then certainly the same United States of America 
as the posterity of Britain, continued to be bound by the solemn league and covenant with God after they ratified the Articles of Confederation, March the 1st, 1781, and the United States Constitution, March the 4th, 1789. Dear ones, this is simply an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the same moral person, namely the posterity of Britain, continued after forming an entirely new political identity, namely the United States of America, then certainly the same moral person as the posterity of Britain continued when the same political identity, namely the United States of America, was retained and continued though a new constitution was established. Clearly, in both the Articles of Confederation and the United States of America, I'm sorry, the United States Constitution, it is assumed that the same national identity was formed and was called the United States of America, as was the case in the Declaration of Independence. And it continues to exist as the United States of America under the Articles of Confederation and the United States Constitution. We read in the Declaration of Independence these words, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America. In Article 1 of the Articles of Confederation, we read, The style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. In the preamble of the Constitution of the United States of America, we read, We, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And so, dear ones, if the same national identity, namely the United States of America, continued from the Declaration of Independence to the U.S. Constitution, then certainly the same moral person likewise continued from the Declaration of Independence to the U.S. Constitution. And if that moral person, as the posterity of Britain, was bound by the Solemn League and Covenant with God after the Declaration of Independence, then it continued to be bound after the U.S. Constitution. For the United States of America continued to be the posterity of Britain, it could not change that. It could not alter that. It was the posterity of Britain. It is the posterity of Britain, regardless of the changes made to their political identity before man, or regardless of the changes made to their political constitutions. Let's turn to our text now, having noted those things from the previous sermon, just uh, finishing off that particular subject, let us look at our, our text today from God's Word. And I want to point out, first of all, from Malachi 2.10, this first main point. The violation of a national covenant leads to the ruin of a nation. In Malachi 2.10, again, we read, have we not one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant 
of our fathers. Dear ones, when covenants made with God become common and ordinary, which is what the word profane means, to make something that is holy, to make it common and ordinary. When covenants made with God become common and ordinary, then we will neither honor or live up to our covenants with one another. For on the one hand, if our word to Almighty God means nothing, our word to mere perishable, corruptible human beings will soon follow down the same path. It will mean nothing. But on the other hand, if we are people who take our vows and covenants to God seriously, And if we do not consider our vows and covenants to God to be a heavy burden that we inwardly despise and must must carry, but rather consider our covenants with God to be our greatest delight, to be in covenant with the infinite and everlasting God of our salvation who would bend so low and condescend to enter into covenant with such wicked evil, human beings as we are by nature. The effect of that faith in the Lord and love for the Lord and for His covenant will be that we will likewise keep our covenants with one another. Dear ones, if we truly desire and pray for the end of the state-endorsed murder of children in the womb, We must, as a nation, understand the treachery to one another, namely to those who are in the womb, those babies in the womb. Treachery to one another follows from our treachery to God. Our covenant breaking with that little one in the womb follows from our covenant breaking to Almighty God. Malachi is the last prophet of God before the closing of the Old Testament canon. His prophecy occurs between 425 to 400 B.C. after God had graciously returned the exiles of Israel and Judah back to Palestine and after the temple had been rebuilt. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, There had been national covenant renewals as we see in Ezra 10.3 and Nehemiah 9.38. And a turning from their sins to their gracious God. But now a few years has passed and we see this over and over and over again. After covenant renewal, how soon we are to forget the covenants we've made with God and turn our backs upon our covenant God And even sometimes within the same generation, and if not in the same generation, the following generation, so often we see turning away from God. And this is what we see happening here in Malachi. A few years has passed since the last covenant renewal under Nehemiah. And the land is polluted again with complete disregard of covenant duties owed to one another. 
and especially owed to God. And as we see in our text in Malachi 2.10, the treachery shown in disregarding the uh, covenanted duties owed to one another was due to the fact that the national covenant of their fathers made at Mount Sinai was being profaned. Because they were treating God treacherously in covenant breaking, they treated one another treacherously in covenant breaking. Mark it down, dear ones. Mark it down. A covenanted nation will deal treacherously in breaking covenant with one another when that nation profanes the national covenant made with God. Malachi prophesies 1,000 years after the national covenant was made with God and between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. And yet the generation living at the time of Malachi is guilty of profaning the covenant of their fathers. Quote, and end of quote. The covenant of their fathers. Why? Why is it said they profaned the covenant of their fathers? Because the obligation of that national covenant extends to posterity in all succeeding generations. How could they profane a covenant that was made a thousand years earlier if they were not bound by it as the posterity? Again, we see that the passing of time, the breaking of covenants with God, the changing of the forms of government as we see happened in Israel, the declaration of independence on the part of the ten tribes from the mother country, the United Kingdom of Israel, the removal of Israel and Judah to other nations by way of captivity. None of these circumstances could terminate a national covenant made with God. Consider briefly with me how covenants among the Israelites were, were violated when the national covenant of their forefathers made at Mount Sinai with God, that covenant made with God was violated. I want to note primarily two covenants that are mentioned here in Malachi chapter 2. Two covenants with fellow human beings that are violated because the covenant with God was violated. First of all, the covenant of the priesthood or the covenant of the ministry. In speaking the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth was broken as we read in Malachi 2 verses 7 through 8. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have cor corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. The prophecy here given by Malachi addresses the covenant breaking of the ministry. 
those who were supposed to proclaim the truth to be the mouthpiece of God, declaring the whole counsel of God, faithfully standing for those covenanted truths revealed by God to his people, they had departed from. They had mixed error with that which is faithful and true. And that is why the Lord says to them in verse 8, speaking to the ministers, speaking to the priests, ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law because they had profaned God's word, because they were teaching error, because they were teaching uh, error in doctrine and worship, because they were promoting that which was false and not adhering to that which was faithful and true. They had corrupted the covenant of Levi. God had chosen that particular family through whom in the Old Testament his ministers would come. They had corrupted it. But that's because they had departed first from the national covenant made with them at Mount Sinai. Dear ones, error in doctrine, impure worship, unbiblical church government and discipline follow covenant breaking with God, which then brings schism and division and denominationalism into a nation. Whereas unity and uniformity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government is the fruit of a nation that honors its covenant with God, division and multiformity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government is the fruit of a nation that dishonors, profanes, forgets, and despises its covenant with God. The rampant, unchecked heresies that riddle this nation that prizes so much its so-called religious liberty is the fruit of national covenant breaking. However, dear ones, God has never given an individual, a church, or a nation the quote-unquote liberty to sin against him or to profess and practice heresy. Such religious liberty so-called is an abomination to God, not something to be cherished and to be prized. True liberty is obeying God's word and his commandments. The perfect law of liberty is God's holy word and commandments. The result of national covenant breaking, dear ones, is the same for us as it was for Israel of old. The covenant of the ministry is broken and the souls of millions of people are lost because gospel truth, which Christ has alone authorized to be preached, no longer proceeds from the mouths of ministers. The sins of the people are no longer exposed but are excused. The sins of leaders are no longer exposed but are excused. The people worship God according to their own inclinations and would rather be entertained and feel good, as it were, when they leave than to offer God praise and worship that is acceptable to Him. 
and which he has prescribed in his word alone. The one true reformed religion taught in scripture, which alone glorifies God, becomes perverted and man-centered in every way rather than Christ-centered when we fall away from covenant with God. Dear ones, if we would see reformation in the church of Christ, in this nation, in all nations of the world, it must begin with mourning over our own treachery as individuals, as families, as a congregation, in breaking our solemn league and covenant with God, and as a nation, in breaking our solemn league and covenant with God. A second covenant with man that was egregiously violated among the people of Israel when they profaned the national covenant of their fathers was the covenant of marriage. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, we read, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Another covenant obligation, another covenant agreement, not only the covenant of the ministry, but the covenant of marriage was dealt with treacherously because God was dealt with treacherously by the people of Israel. Dear ones, when we do not honor our covenants with God, it will be most manifest in our own homes, with our own spouses, and with our own children. The home, the marriage, and the family will suffer God's judgment when we profane and treat as common our covenant with God, whether our national covenant with God, whether our baptismal, baptismal covenant with God, whether personal covenants with God or, or whether the covenant of grace with God. And I would submit to you that the pornography that enslaves so many in this nation, the adultery and the unlawful divorces that have no warrant from God's word are again the result of our treachery in profaning the covenant of our forefathers made with the Lord our God on behalf of us as the posterity of Britain. We are a nation, dear ones, of covenant breakers and we have reaped the judgment of God in covenant breaking of every kind against even the most unprotected and the most vulnerable in our nation, the unborn within the womb. You see, it's not simply that God judges us for our covenant breaking in wars and in pestilences and calamities 
in the down spiraling of our economy, depressions, recessions. But God judges us, dear ones, as well by giving to us wicked leaders who enact wicked laws and continue to promote so-called religious liberty while taking away from us the very foundation of liberty, the law and the covenant of God. All done in the name of liberty. What about God's liberty? What about God's rights? Dear ones, there is only one hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one hope and it is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is called in Malachi 3.1 the messenger of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant. He who brings the greatest news from God about the covenant of grace wherein He goes forth fulfills all righteousness for His people, dies and suffers to forgive them of their sin and the condemnation which they deserve, and then draws them to Himself through the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And by His Spirit, grants to them faith to lay hold of Christ, repentance to turn from their sin. Dear ones, let us, each one, call out to Christ today, now. Let us call out to Christ, the messenger of the covenant, to break our hearts and to grant us a repentance that mourns over our sins against our holy and gracious God. A repentance that looks to the mercy that is found in Jesus Christ alone and repentance that endeavors and continues to endeavor, no matter how many times we fall, continues to endeavor new obedience to Christ. Dear ones, all the social justice programs, all of the political action groups, and all of the voluntary organizations in this nation will never achieve their goals of justice, so-called justice, apart from, from renewing our solemn league and covenant with God as a nation, and then there will be true justice. And then the magistrates will rule according to a faithful constitution and administer justice as God and what God calls justice, which is really the only true justice. My second main point is this a brief testimony of both church and ministry to the covenanted status of this nation, that is, of the United States of America. First, on November the 11th, 1743, a hundred years to the, to the exact year after the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn in England, Ireland, and Scotland, at Middle Octara, Pennsylvania, a remnant of Reformed Presbyterians under the leadership of Reverend Alexander Craighead renewed the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. 
being descendants of England, Ireland, and Scotland, they realized that they were the posterity of, the, of those original covenanters and that the colonies in America were His Majesty's dominions, that they were the realm, a part of the realm of the nation of Britain and England. They realized that removal from the shores of their motherland did not remove their covenanted duties, their covenanted rights and privileges before God. Therefore, they renewed the covenant of their fathers as God provided the occasion to do so in his wonderful providence. And in this covenant renewal, it states, among many other things, but just this brief little statement, there never was any nation but the nation of the Jews and this realm that were so highly honored as for the whole nation to enter into covenant with the Lord by way of the solemn league and covenant. Carefully observe how those faithful Christians called the British colonies a part of the realm of England that as a whole nation entered into the solemn league and covenant with the Lord. Certainly those covenanted Christians there in Middle Octaara, Pennsylvania, understood that the British colonies, they understood the British colonies to be bound by the solemn league and covenant a hundred years later, for they were part of the realm of England that was bound by the solemn league and covenant. Later on in this covenant renewal, the Solemn League and Covenant was even stated to be, quote, unquote, perpetual and of a constant binding power over this realm. In 1782, secondly, the recently formed Reformed Presbytery in the United States had united with the Associate Presbyterian Church in the United States to form the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. In doing so, the Reformed Presbytery turned their backs upon their previous profession and testimony to the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant as it relates to the United States of America. The faithful Reformed Presbytery of Scotland testified the following year in 1783 against the treacherous covenant breaking that had been committed by the former Reformed Presbytery in the United States in these words. Again, it's a longer letter that was written, but I'm simply taking brief excerpts from that letter. In that letter, the Reformed Presbytery of Scotland states, No change of place or location, can annul the obligation of an oath to Jehovah, as in the Solemn League and Covenant, consisting of moral duties upon the person or persons who have sworn it, of which kind our solemn covenants are. And if they are of this nature, where can be the objection against professing and holding out the same covenants as to the spirit and substance of them to the people of America? 
to be accepted and sworn by them in their respective places and stations any more than to the British Isles. The Reformed Presbytery of Scotland, dear ones, makes it clear that simply crossing the Atlantic Ocean and forming a new presbytery in the British colonies or the United States of America did not annul the covenanted obligation they owed to Jehovah God under the Solemn League and Covenant any more than those owed to God who lived in the British Isles. Samuel B. Wiley who lived from 1773 to 1852, was pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. He correctly ties the covenanted obligation to the Solemn League and Covenant to those living in the United States of America in the following words from a sermon he preached on covenanting. He states, if he is thus bound by the Solemn League and Covenant in Britain, does the soil of Columbia, that is the District of Columbia, the United States of America, does the soil of Columbia loose him of all obligation to and make him independent of the moral governor? In as far as this moral obligation is concerned between national and personal covenanting, there is, only, there is only a numerical difference. In the latter, one individual is personally bound. In the former, three, four, or five millions of individuals are personally bound. Next, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America published a document by the Order of Synod entitled Testimony for Public Covenanting, which appeared February 1839 in the church periodical, the Reformed Presbyterian. Here we find a clear delineation of the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to the United States of America. These uh, are a little bit longer, so again, listen closely. In that document it states, The covenants of Britain extend their obligations to all who now live in Scotland, in Ireland, and in England, this is admitted by all who in any form maintain the descending obligation of national federal transactions. The covenants also bind all the posterity of every man who was bound by the Solemn League and Covenant when it was sworn in 1643 by the representatives of the nation, whether he remained in Britain or immigrated to some other country that the children of the actual covenanters when immigrating from the land of their nativity are bound by the covenant obligations has been always maintained by Reformed Presbyterians. The colonies at the time of entering into the Solemn League and Covenant were an integral part of the British nation. The Old Congress of 1774 that is the Continental Congress of 1774 solemnly claimed for themselves and for the people of the colonies whom they represented quote all the rights and immunities of British citizens end of quote the most excellent part of their birthright in, and immunities was that they inherited a title to the covenant blessings of their ancestors 
who entered into federal relations with the God of Israel. Likewise, the same truth is taught by the Reverend Dr. James Wilson when he gave the introductory lecture on public covenanting at the opening of the session of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, November the 7th, 1848. In that lecture, he states, All the colonies at the time of the swearing of the National Bond of Britain, the Solemn League and Covenant, in 1643, were an integral part of the British Empire. The titles to their land were issued by the Crown of England. The colonies were as really the offspring of Britain as Isaac and Jacob were of Abraham. This argument is augmented in its force by the fact that the Congress of 74, that is 1774, elected by the people of the colonies, solemnly claimed all the rights and immunities of British subjects. The best of these immunities were these secured by the greatest, by the great national charter granted us by the church's head, the Solemn League and Covenant. And finally, I close with one last citation taken from a book entitled the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland, Its Origin and History, 1680-1876, by Matthew Hutchison. And uh, the excerpt, brief excerpt I'm reading is from page 407. Wherein, in this excerpt, is provided a reason as to why Reformed Presbyterians who relocated from the British Isles continued to own the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant. Hutchison states this, The essential principles of the covenants concerning liberty and religion, the reciprocal duties of nations and rulers, and the obligation which both owe to Christ as governor among the nations, were binding on American churches and on the American citizens who were of British origin. Dear ones, if it is treachery, if it is treachery for a covenanted nation to turn its back upon the covenant of its fathers, how much more treacherous for Presbyterian churches and Presbyterian ministers that trace their ancestry back to the Reformed churches of England, Ireland, and Scotland to do so. We as Presbyterians have especially erred and egregiously profaned the Solemn League and Covenant and shown contempt for our God by forgetting and ignoring counting it outdated or irrelevant, disowning and despising with treachery the covenant of our fathers. God have mercy upon us all that we might fall upon our faces before the Lord and seek with broken hearts the God of the covenant of grace who is the same God of our solemn league and covenant.
Amen. Let us stand together in prayer. Our most gracious, covenant-keeping God, we have sinned against Thee as individuals and families, as a church of Christ, and as a nation. O Lord our God, have mercy upon us. Give to us a broken and contrite heart, O God. And in our places and stations, O God, help us, our Lord, to live out the principles, those moral principles found in the Solemn League and Covenant. And even though, O Lord, the civil aspects of that on the part of the the leaders of a covenanted nation can certainly not be practiced now with such covenant breaking. Help us, our God, to uphold the principles that we find there as to our duties and responsibilities as subjects, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow covenanters, O God. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would give to us a heart to be honest before Thee, to not hide our sins and our covenant breaking. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would forgive us as ministers for our breaking covenant with Thee. Forgive, Lord, us who are married for breaking covenant with Thee. For, Lord, these covenant, all this covenant breaking flows from our breaking covenant, Lord, with Thee in our national covenant. We pray, our Father, that Thou indeed would lead us in the paths of righteousness and truth and that, Lord, we would not despair, small as we may be, a scattered remnant as we may be. Help us, our Lord, to adhere to by covenanted truths, which are simply, Lord, that those truths found in that solemn league and covenant, simply the truths that we find in thy holy law and the commandments of God. We do ask, Lord, that thou would hear us, that thou would raise up our spirits afresh and anew to feast upon Jesus, who is our covenant keeper, who is the only hope for us as individuals, the only hope for our families, the only hope for the church of Christ, and the only hope for this nation. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.